I'm sure many of us have visited Arlington National Cemetery and seen the Custis family estate, the eternal flame at the grave of John F. Kennedy, and the tomb of the unknown soldier, as well as the acres of gravestones that mark the final resting place of more than 300,000 citizen warriors who served their nation over the past 146 years. In his newest book, Section 60, Arlington National Cemetery, Where War Comes Home, Robert Poole offers an, a powerful contemporary biography of a 14-acre plot in Arlington National Cemetery where many of those killed in Iraq and Afghanistan have been laid to rest alongside service members from earlier wars. It is a portrait of our national cemetery as a living, breathing community and a narrative of how improvised explosive devices, suicide bombs, and enemies who blend in with local populations have changed the nature and the aftermath of conflict. Using Section 60 as a window into the latest wars, Poole recounts stories of courage and sacrifice, and he explores the ways in which the soldier, soldiers, comrades, friends, and families honor and remember those lost to war, carrying on with life in the aftermath of tragedy. Section 60 is a moving tribute to those who have fought and died for our country and to those who love them. Robert M. Poole, former executive editor of National Geographic, is a writer whose assignments for Smithsonian and National Geographic have taken him around the world. Bob's books include Explorer's House, National Geographic, and The World It Made, On Hallowed Ground, the story of Arlington Cemetery, about which he spoke here back in 2010, and Section 60, Arlington National Cemetery, Where War Comes Home. In addition, Bob has served as a wonderful tour guide to VHS bus trips to Arlington. Walking the cemetery with him is an extraordinary and very emotional experience. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Bob Poole. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here at VHS uh, to see all of these people. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and uh, happy to have the opportunity to talk about uh, this special place, uh, Arlington National Cemetery, Section 60. Uh, it's a, uh, a place that is not like any other at Arlington Cemetery. Uh, in this uh, opening image, the cover of the book, there's a, uh, you see a soldier from the Old Guard, the Third uh, Army's Third uh, Infantry Regiment, putting out American flags, a little American flag in front of each grave uh, at Arlington for Memorial Day, which is the big day of the year at Arlington Cemetery. Uh, my intention in uh, writing this book was to use Section 60 as a way to tell some of the stories uh, of those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, those who served in our, what, what has become, what became 
America's longest war, 13 years in Afghanistan. In fact, the, uh, the last combat troops just came home a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there are more than 900 service members from these most recent wars buried in this part of Arlington. So if you just, you go to Arlington any day, take a walk through the cemetery, stop at a tombstone, I can guarantee you there is a fascinating story behind each of those tombstones. Uh, I'll just tell a few of those today. And uh, my idea with this book was to salute those on both sides of the, the grave, the people who sacrificed for our country in our most recent wars, and those who remain behind, their friends and family, who come to this part of Arlington to uh, try to make sense of our most recent wars, to try to get on with their lives, and to remember those who served there. This is how most of us think of Arlington, uh, a, a sea of uniform, white tombstones, green grass, uh, beautiful, peaceful place. And it, is, it has a certain aesthetic. Uh, this, a friend of mine who was a National Geographic photographer, Bruce Dale, had the, the crazy idea of photographing Arlington with infrared film. So this, this is an image, it looks like it's from the fall. It's actually from high summer because the, the, uh, the light spectrum makes the leaves, the green leaves shine like it's autumn. And uh, he did a whole series of photographs, uh, which uh, I'm glad to have a couple of them in this book from Bruce. But this gives you a sense that uh, the peace, the, uh, the healing, uh, the tranquil, feeling that you get when you go to Arlington Cemetery. This is at a distance. Uh, this is just to orient you. Uh, this is a, a map of the, the cemetery at large, 620 acres. Uh, section 60 is uh, right here. If you can see where the cursor is, this is 14 acres within 620 acres. This is the Tomb of the Unknowns here. Uh, and the uh, Lee Mansion is up here. Uh, JFK's grave is here. And this is the main entrance memorial uh, drive and the visitor center here. So uh, this is the section we're talking about in this book, section 60, where you see the cursor now. Uh, one of the things you notice at Arlington, when you, when you spend time there, you hang out, uh, there is no memorial for the Iraq or Afghanistan war, not yet. I'm sure there will be someday, but until that happens, this is the memorial. This is the point of contact. This is where people come to uh, visit uh, husbands, wives, children who were killed in the most recent wars and uh, they bring all sorts of things, and I'm just going to, I'm going to zip through uh, very quickly after this image just to give you a sense of the things people bring just to, uh, to have something, to do something positive to remember someone who has been lost in wartime. They bring all kinds of things, uh, and they leave them there 
so that uh, it's a way of honoring someone, uh, maybe making the passage from this world to the next world a little easier. Uh, this tradition uh, of, of bringing beers or alcohol, this goes back, as far as you go back in literature about warfare, uh, you go back to Homer's day, uh, to uh, the battle for Troy. Uh, one of the things that happens in that story is the same thing you see happening in section 60. When Patroclus dies, his friend Achilles pours wine onto his grave. You see that every day in section 60. Uh, a, a drink for the guy in the ground, a drink for the person who's come to honor him. Uh, it, it's very much a part of the experience at Arlington today and one of the things people bring. All against the regulations at Arlington. <laughs> and it, it drives the, the people who run Arlington nuts because people bring all this stuff and, and uh, they leave it. Uh, it's a way of showing somebody still cares. And it, it's up to Arlington to figure out how to clean things up. Uh, but there's a constant, constant battle, constant ten tension between the guys who run Arlington and the people who come there to visit friends and comrades. This works against the clean uh, military aesthetic uh, that's expected at Arlington, but you see it again and again. People bring little toy soldiers. A little uh, camo duck and a cigar for Staff Sergeant Jimmy Malachowski. Easter time, people bring chocolate rabbits. These little hearts, which are glued to gravestones, which are, you're not supposed to glue or scotch tape or fix anything to a gravestone at Arlington. And this tradition, which you see uh, all over Section 60, the Jewish tradition is uh, to for when, when you visit a grave, you leave a stone, a pebble, on top of the gravestone. This has been adapted by everybody at, at Arlington, and especially at Section 60. Not only do they leave stones, they leave little messages on the stones. Uh, this uh, this uh, Master Sergeant uh, was a basketball fan. Someone left him a little basketball funny. Uh, Easter time, someone has put rabbit ears on the, the grave of a, an army helicopter pilot. Uh, and you see just in front of the grave in the foreground, uh, Charles uh, Heinlein from uh, Hemlock, Michigan, killed in Iraq, was a Wiccan, uh, which is uh, not a uh, well-recognized religion, but it's, uh, uh, it is a, uh, that was his, that was his faith, that was his religion, and only in America could you have uh, the ACLU brought a court case against the Veterans Administration so that Tom Heinlein and other Wiccans would have the right to display their religious symbols on their graves. And that's what this is, the five-star, uh, the, the pinnacle 
with a circle around it, which is the Wiccan symbol, which is now one of something like, I think there are 40, 45 recognized symbols that you can have on your gravestone at Arlington. So a walk through Arlington is a walk through uh, ecumenical uh, experience. Uh, you see Jews, Christians, Wiccans, Buddhists, Sikhs, uh, Taoist, so many branches of Christianity, uh, you know, the, the, there, there were uh, groups that you never heard of before, all represented at Arlington. A little uh, zombie chainsaw sticker someone put on a grave. People bring a lot of photographs of uh, young men and women who uh, have tombs at Arlington. This is a group of, these are all Navy SEALs from SEAL Team 6 dressed up as cowboys uh, with a wife or a girlfriend at the center of the group. And th these SEALs uh, were, SEAL Team 6, as all of you know, was, was uh, responsible for killing uh, Osama bin Laden. The individuals in this part of SEAL Team 6 were not involved in that operation, but they were, they were operating in Afghanistan. They were on a Chinook helicopter. Uh, they were on a mission to uh, go in and, and, and help some other special ops uh, guys in Afghanistan. And their Chinook was uh, shot down by a rocket-propelled grenade. 33 people died. Everybody on that chopper died, 33 people, uh, many of them SEALs from SEAL Team 6. These, these are some of the guys who were killed. The biggest single loss of uh, life uh, for our side in the 13-year war. They're all, I think there's something like 17 of them from that group, uh, all buried, all together, holding the ground in Section 60 at Arlington. This is a, uh, a, a, a love letter to one of the seals who died. Uh, very intimate, uh, honey buns, I miss you so much, longing to be with you. Uh, why am I reading this letter? Uh, because I think whoever put it there wants uh, visitors to know that this person was loved, uh, it's a way of showing that he is not forgotten. You see this over and over and over again. Something like four million people a year visit Arlington National Cemetery. So if you put a letter like this on a gravestone, you can expect it to be seen. It's not gonna be secret. Uh, but you see this time and time again. You see this, do you remember the Jewish tradition I mentioned earlier, putting rocks, uh, stones on top of a tombstone it's sort of been taken to ridiculous lengths. People now bring these big boulders and this is like a long love letter which goes over onto the other side of the rock from uh, Katie Madden from Florida, her fiance killed in Afghanistan. She's got this long note to him, her way of saying, I love you, I miss you. Uh, periodically, the uh, Department of the Army, which runs Arlington Cemetery, will come through every couple of weeks and collect uh, perishable materials, flowers, 
uh, birthday cakes, you know, whatever uh, visitors have left, beer bottles, whatever people have left. Uh, but they have also, for several years now, been cataloging the things people bring to Arlington, to Section 60, and uh, archiving it at the, uh, the Army Center of Military History so that future historians will have a record of some of the things people brought to Arlington. And it's, it's really a remarkable uh, list of things that people bring. Report cards for fathers to see. Uh, sonograms of babies who haven't been born yet. Uh, just anything you can think of. Uh, little things. I noticed going to Arlington, I spent four or five years doing this book, and I noticed that quite often you would see a quarter or a penny on top of someone's gravestone. And with some regularity, you would see this. And I couldn't, I, you know, I thought it must have some meaning. Maybe somebody owed a debt to somebody, maybe, who knows. But uh, I was there one day, and a, a Marine who was there to visit a, a, a fellow Marine who was in the ground said, well, here's the convention. We leave a quarter if we were there when the Marine died. We leave a penny if we were in boot camp together. That's what it means. So historians will be uh, trying to work these things out for, for years to come. And they built up quite a collection of objects, quite similar to uh, what you see at the Vietnam War Memorial just across the river, which is under the jurisdiction of the National Park Service. For years, the archivists there have been collecting materials and uh, uh, putting them away because it helps tell the story of the war, these things that people bring, the things that, uh, that, that seem important, uh, that tell you something about how a war was fought. Uh, this is a Happy Birthday, which has a certain irony for uh, this uh, Marine. Uh, but you see this every, every day in Section 60. People remember birthdays. They bring birthday cake. They sing happy birthday. They talk to the person underground as if it's the most normal thing in the world. Uh, it would be considered crazy anywhere else. It's not here. People continue to live in some way in this part of Arlington. Uh, you can see to the, to the right of the grave uh, a lot of little placards uh, which I'll, I'll explain in a later uh, picture, but there's a reason that you see all those, those little plaques in the ground. Uh, if, you, if, if you have a, uh, a friend or, or loved one buried at Arlington, uh, that person will have a grave number. So in, in this case, Kermit Evans, uh, he's in section 60, dash 8519. 60 is the section of the cemetery. 8519 is the number of his grave there. You can call a florist and send flowers to, to anybody you want there if you have the, the grave number and the zip code. And you see this over and over again. Florists make several runs a day to this part of Arlington delivering flowers. The wife's. 
uh, and you, you see uh, comrades uh, who come to to pay their respects to people they served with. This is a uh, a gentleman name is I don't know what his real name is, but he he rumbled up. I was there one day talking to Nick Kerbin's uh, mother. Uh, Nick Kerbin is a, a Marine corporal buried in Section 60. He was killed in a firefight in uh, Afghanistan. This uh, gentleman whose uh, forearm, you, who, whose shoulder uh, and forearm you see in the picture, nicknamed Tiny, who, you know, <laughs> was anything but, rumbled up on a Harley, crossed the cemetery, and came over to see his, his old buddy. And we had a nice talk about uh, the time they served together. Uh, this is uh, Lance Corporal uh, Brandon Long, who uh, was uh, just out of Walter Reed, or, or just out of Bethesda Naval Hospital. Uh, he lost his legs in Afghanistan. Coming to see uh, Derek Wyatt, a guy he served with in Afghanistan. And uh, while I was, I was there talking to him, uh, Long lit up a Newport and put it in his left hand. And he lit up another Newport in his right hand. And he, he leaned over and left one for his friend, Derek Watt, Wyatt. And he said, uh, Wyatt never bought a cigarette for himself. He always bummed them from me. <laughs> and it always had to be a Newport. So uh, he placed it in the ground, and we watched it burned down, and that's what he does. He has this little ceremony he goes through when he, uh, he comes to visit his, his buddy in Section 60. Uh, Wyatt's, uh, as I remember, Wyatt's wife was pregnant when he was killed. Uh, their child was delivered one day after he was killed in Afghanistan, and she comes to visit. Uh, there are a hundred stories like that in this part of Auburn. Uh, this is another uh, comrade, uh, Chad Thibodeau. He was a specialist at this time, army specialist, uh, coming to uh, very badly wounded in a suicide bomb attack in uh, Iraq early in the war, very early in the war. He's coming to pay his respects. He got out of, uh, against doctor's orders, uh, crawled out of bed at Walter Reed, got in a wheelchair, got a ride to Arlington to pay his respects to his captain. Uh, this is uh, Army Captain uh, Russ Ripito, who was the first combat fatality from the Iraq War to be buried in Section 60 early in the war, the first weeks of war. Uh, Ripito is from a, a military family. This is his, his mom, Rita Ripito, receiving the flag at the end of the ceremony. And his dad, uh, a, a Vietnam veteran, uh, who uh, was very badly injured in Vietnam. He served many uh, uh, tours in Vietnam. Uh, Joe Ripito is his name can still wear the old uniform, uh, a, a ranger like his son, 
uh, here he is to uh, send his son on uh, the last the last deployment a big moment for Joe and taps for Russell Ripito on that day at Arlington uh, as all of you all of you know who've been to uh, an Arlington funeral nobody ever forgets the ceremony uh, the precision the care that is given to uh, service members as this final salute is made. This is the end of the ceremony when taps is sounded. Uh, and it looks good because each of the uh, each of the service branches provides its own honor guard to take care of its own people. So if you're a Marine, you'll be seen off by, by Marines, Army, by fellow soldiers, Air Force, Navy, right down the line. Every service has its own honors team, and that includes uh, uh, firing party, casket team, uh, a chaplain if you want one, and uh, taps. And if you rate a case on, uh, you, you get uh, horses from the old guard. The Army provides all the horses and the caissons. So there are people practicing they spend all day long. They, they spend all day long practicing, 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 folding flags, firing uh, rifle salutes. This is at Fort Myer, uh, the old guard. These guys are going through practice uh, out behind the barracks at Fort Myer, so that uh, they look like this on the day of a funeral. This, these are. Uh, this is a firing party from uh, Hotel Company, the old guard. And the idea is that when, when those, uh, those gentlemen raise their weapons and fire that final salute, it sounds like one shot, not seven. You don't want to hear a ripple effect. So they practice, practice, practice under the very watchful eye of a sergeant who makes sure that they do it right and they do it with precision. Uh, quite often, uh, people will go to an Arlington service they will count that they will see that there's seven people in the firing party and they will they will hear three rifle volleys seven times three equals 21 so they assume it's a 21 gun salute it is not it's a three rifle volley uh, only the president of the united states and the nation rate a 21 gun salute but uh seven times uh, three does equal 21, and, and there, there's a, I don't know how far back this tradition goes, but everything is done by odd numbers in military ceremony. Uh, a three-gun salute, a three-rifle salute, uh, the, the, the teams are in odd numbers, even numbers are considered unlucky. There's some basis for that, I'm not sure what it is, but I think it may go back to Greek and Roman times. Uh, those of you who have been uh, on the bus tours to uh, Arlington, have we, we've been to Fort Myer together, Fort Myer Stables. They have something like 40 horses there. Uh, they maintain these horses for Arlington funerals. And this is a, a horse named Omar, named after General Omar Bradley. Uh, he's getting his morning wash for the day so that he will look sharp 
uh, for the ceremonies to come. These guys in the Quezon platoon at Fort Myer are amazing soldiers. They're there every morning before anybody else, 4.30, 5 in the morning. They're there washing the horses, cleaning them up, cleaning the tack. Then they have to clean themselves up. Then they go into the ceremony for a day of funerals. This is what they look like. They have two teams. They have a gray team and a, a bay team. They call it white and black. And this is the white team uh, heading into the, the cemetery for uh, funerals. Uh, and they, they have this, uh, you can see that all of the, all six horses attached to the caisson are saddled. Uh, this dates from Civil War times, so that uh, you had a caisson carrying ammunition to the front uh, if, if uh, you needed, a, you know, if someone needed another horse at the front, the uh, team was arranged so that you could pull a horse out of, off of the caisson. It was already saddled up, ready to go. You could go into action with it. They still follow that Civil War tradition at Arlington. And you, you see that three members of the caisson team are riding on the left-hand side. They are led by a section leader who has, usually has a big horse and uh, is usually a sergeant and he sets the pace and he decides where the caisson goes. Uh, these are the marine body bearers from uh, 8th and I. They're recruited for their size and strength. They spend all day pumping iron. Uh, they uh, make it look easy. Uh, but they, they are, it, it's, they're a remarkable group. Uh, the Marines do things a little differently. All the other services uh, have uh, eight people on a casket team. You can see the Marines do it with six, and they're very proud of that. Uh, it's the Marine way. But it, it's really a remarkable group of young men. This is uh, one of them. I spent some time at 8th and I with these guys. The, the, the gentleman folding the flag is uh, a, a, a young man named Ruben Franco, who uh, is a body bearer. So they have to have the strength to carry the casket uh, without dropping it, without making any mistakes. But then they also have to, uh, at the end of the ceremony, fold the flag with great precision and dexterity. And he's putting the final touches on the flag before it is passed to uh, another officer to hand off to the family. These guys practice for hours and hours to make it look the way it looks when you go to an Arlington service. Uh, something you notice at Arlington now, section 60, are uh, they're women under the gravestones. Uh, they're not women in combat yet, but there soon will be. And uh, you also see this on the honors teams. This is uh, a, uh, a, uh, an Air Force sergeant named Jennifer Powell who can lift 300 pounds. Uh, she could break me or you know many of us in half. Uh, and she is uh, a member of the Air Force Honor Guard carrying caskets, carrying her, her uh, Air Force brothers and sisters on the final journey at Arlington. So you now see women on the casket teams, the firing parties, uh, the marching platoons, all of the specialty groups now have women involved. And 
there are uh, many women buried in Section 60, more than uh, in previous wars, as the truck drivers, clerks, helicopter pilots uh, are women, a lot of them. And they're getting closer to the shooting, and many of them end up in Section 60. Just the way wars change. You see it reflected here. A big day at Arlington Memorial Day. People bring chairs, they bring umbrellas, they bring uh, picnics, they set up, they spend the day with a loved one who uh, is buried at Arlington. And you, you, uh, you meet people uh, like Ross McGinnis, uh, a specialist from the Army, Medal of Honor recipient from the Iraq War. Uh, we live in a time when you hear a lot about how selfish people are, how greedy they are, how uh, self-absorbed people are. But you don't have to spend much time in, in this part of Arlington to learn that there are a lot of young men and women who have uh, been willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice, like Ross McGinnis. Uh, he was in a... Uh, riding in the top of a Humvee uh, north of Baghdad. And someone, uh, it's a very tightly packed streets. Someone from a building dropped a grenade into the turret of the Humvee past him. And uh, he did what he was trained to do. He announced grenade so that his, his comrades in the Humvee could hear him. Uh, and he could have jumped out at that point. He would have been perfectly justified by training to do so. He jumped on top of the grenade. And earned this spot at Arlington. There are four people alive today because of what he did. And this is why he received the Medal of Honor. The first uh, person in this part of Arlington to have that award, which is, uh, y y you can see that the convention on the tombstone, anyone who has the Medal of Honor has an incised gold seal. It's the only tombstone at Arlington that has that. It's, uh, and inside the seal is a profile of the Roman goddess of war, Minerva. Uh, this is another example, there, and there, I, I, have, I write about this in the book, uh, the, the examples of young men and women who uh, saved other people in wartime, our recent wars, or who did amazing things. This is uh, an Army Ranger named Ben Kopp. He's from Minnesota. Uh, he was shot in uh, Iraq. He wasn't going to make it. Uh, he was on life support. He, he, got, he stayed alive until they got him back to uh, Walter Reed in, in uh, Washington. But he wasn't going to make it. He was on life support. His, his mom, Jill Stevenson, made the difficult decision to end life support because it was clear he wasn't going to recover. And uh, I apologize for the, this is not a very good picture, but it's the only one I have. This person is Judy uh, Meikle, who would be dead now if it had not been for that Army Ranger you just saw, Ben Cop. She has his heart. 
Uh, so he lives on in this way. Uh, and people, many of the people who are buried at Arlington still live on in all these, these different ways. Uh, Judy comes to visit uh, her benefactor's grave at least once a year. She's become best friends with uh, Ben's mother. And indeed, uh, every Mother's Day, she sends uh, a Mother's Day card to uh, Ben's mother, the mother of her heart. This is a, uh, a young man named A.J. Baddock from uh, Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Uh, he was a rowdy kid. You can sort of see the swagger, you know, with him just sitting there. Uh, he was in the one, 101st Airborne Division. And uh, he won the highest uh, award you can, you can receive for non-combat activity in the Army, the Soldier's Medal. He won it because uh, in Iraq, uh, he was in a convoy. Uh, the convoy uh, uh, was in a hurry to get somewhere, which all the convoys are. You have to go fast because you're in enemy territory. And one of the Humvees ended up in a canal, 20 feet deep, underwater. This guy, A.J. Baddock, without thinking about it, jumped out of the following Humvee, ripped off his helmet, ripped off his uh, flak vest, dived in, saved one man, and was in the process of saving another from drowning underwater, trapped in the Humvee. And he got trapped and died. Uh, he came back to Arlington. He's one of, the, one of the stories of heroism you will see there. This is one of the richly dedicated graves at Arlington. You can hardly see the, the occupant's name because of all the decorations. Uh, and his mom, uh, Allison Malachowski, a Marine sergeant in her time. Her son was a uh, staff sergeant in the Marines. Killed in, killed in uh, Afghanistan by a depressingly familiar means, the improvised explosive device. What I tried to do in this book was to, to pick representative stories and talk about how war has changed, what makes these wars different. One thing that makes them different is the uh, extensive use of IEDs and the uh, terrible effect they've had on our service members We've gotten better at defending against them, but there's not a lot you can do because they're cheap to make, they're easy to conceal. And on this end of the story, uh, the IED uh, damage to the uh, service member is usually so catastrophic that families are encouraged not to see their uh, son or husband or whoever is killed for the last time. Uh, they're advised against it, so it's changed an important part of the grieving process for a lot of families. That's something you see. It's something that bothers families, like Allison uh, pictured here. Uh, you don't get to see that person for the last time. But it's part of what we're living with now uh, in this kind of war. This is Jimmy Malachowski the, uh, the, the, in Afghanistan uh, just days before he was killed. Uh, another uh, aspect of uh, our recent wars uh, is PTSD. 
this is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, it's been recognized since the 1980s uh, in the diagnostic uh, manuals. Uh, and uh, we have begun, we've had pretty good success with treating it if it is uh, diagnosed and treated early enough. Uh, however, there are people in Section 60, and there, there are others I'm sure you've read about, including this young man, uh, the toughest of the tough. Uh, this, this is a, a, a Green Beret, a Master Sergeant named uh, Sean Mokabe, uh, who killed himself after 10 years of almost constant warfare. He just couldn't break it. He would not get help. He thought if he asked for help, it would kill his career. And a lot of the guys at the operating level still think that. So he's there in Section 60. Uh, it's not a death sentence to have PTSD. Uh, if you have, and it's not a career killer. If you have it, if you get it treated, we've been pretty successful at treating it. But we didn't really know that early enough. There, there are a lot of people we lost to PTSD, and you find them in this part of Arlington. This is one of them. This is his family. They're terrific people. Uh, they were uh, they were happy to uh, share their stories of Sean with me because they thought it might help another family. They did everything they could to support him, to try to save him, but there was only so much they could do. Uh, this is a, uh, one of those infrared photographs by my friend Bruce Dale, a young Marine who uh, was in the Second Battle of Fallujah, uh, who uh, had very severe PTSD. He's now okay. He survived. I include his, his image to show that he survived. The tattoo you see on his left arm is the tattoo of a tourniquet that... Uh, uh, Navy uh, corpsman applied, which saved his life. He almost lost his arm, but he saved his life, and uh, eventually he recovered from PTSD. He's doing okay, and he has this great uh, tourniquet tattoo, which, you know, he can tell stories about for the rest of his life. Father and son, uh, David Sherritt, and David Sherritt II. Uh, David Sherritt II, killed by friendly fire in Iraq, shot by his lieutenant by mistake in a firefight. Uh, the father, a high school uh, English teacher from Northern Virginia, he taught honors English, he taught Shakespeare. Uh, he did not know for weeks how his son, his son had died. He didn't know it was friendly fire. Uh, even after the Pat Tillman episode, it's very, very hard to get uh, the Army and the other services to uh, come clean about friendly fire incidents. Uh, it, 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 it's underreported. And anyway, to make, uh, to get to the end of this story, uh, David Sherritt Sr. Uh, heard from David Sherritt Jr.'s comrades what had happened, and he made it a crusade of his as a tribute to his son to find out what had really happened, just to establish how he had died and to make sure that the Army was responsible for it, that they were held responsible for it, that they acknowledged what had happened. It took him 
about four years to reach that point. But it was his way of remembering his son and honoring his son. Do you remember that, uh, those uh, plaques you saw, multiple plaques in the ground? That's a space holder. When someone is buried at Arlington, they put a plaque in the ground for an individual, or in this case, for a group burial. These are, uh, this part of Arlington is not exclusively uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, there are other uh, people from earlier wars, back to World War II, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, coming into Arlington almost every month. Uh, and this, is, uh, this group is from World War II, from uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, Army Air, an Army Air crew, a bomber crew, that went down in Papua New Guinea in World War II. We have teams out all over the world looking for old crash sites, looking for our men and women who have died overseas, bringing them back, making IDs, giving them a final send-off at Arlington. And this is, this is such a group here. This gentleman, uh, uh, Sergeant uh, Clyde Thomason, uh, killed in World War II, one of the earliest uh, marine engagements, uh, the Macon Island raid, one of the earliest commando raids in World War II. Uh, he was gone for, uh, from 1942 to uh, something like, I think it was 2001. Uh, it took that long to find him, to ID him and his uh, comrades to bring them back to Arlington. So he, he is there today. Uh, he got a big send-off. Lots of people came. Uh, he had proper ceremony. It took a long time to get to that point, but we, we've gotten pretty good about going out and finding people from earlier wars, bringing them back, doing the right thing, closing the circle. Uh, and one reason for that is this gentleman. Uh, this is one of the last people to, one of the last airmen to uh, die in Vietnam, uh, Captain Anthony Shine. Uh, he went down in, uh, I think it was December 1972. Uh, a few weeks later, uh, the peace talks ended and basically there was no more war. At least we were not involved in the war after that. Uh, but his family went for 26 years not knowing whether he was a prisoner or whether he was dead. And uh, they became active in the POW-MIA alliance. They worked tirelessly to find out what happened to this guy. And because of their efforts, uh, this is what led to, to th this ties back to, to uh, what I was saying earlier about the guys from World War II coming back. They came back because the people from Vietnam, the families and friends, the Vietnam era, were so distraught at our way of then uh, of not accounting for the people who died in the Vietnam War that we created a whole uh, infrastructure for finding them, bringing them back. Uh, this is uh, the daughter of Tony Shine, Colleen Shine holding his flight helmet. She became so frustrated with the government's inability to, to account for him, to bring him home, 
that she went to Vietnam herself, found his crash site, found his remains, found his flight helmet, brought it home, took the flight helmet to Congress and basically used it as a weapon to, uh, to have people take notice to do the right thing by her family. She goes to Section 60 now. She lives in the Washington area. She goes there. She makes the rounds. She talks to other families, and she tells them, look, you know, I am, I know you're going through a hard time. I know it's tough, but I'm living proof that you can get through this. You'll be okay. And you see this uh, great community of the living taking care of each other in this part of Arlington, and it makes it a very special place because of people like Colleen Shine and the others who uh, do all they can to keep the memory of our servicemen and women alive. Thank you very much. to take questions. Okay, thanks very much. See you. Okay. Here's a mic. We're gonna, we have a mic coming. You were mentioning uh, the different services that are buried in Arlington. Uh, I know it's been a recent conversation in regard to the uh, Merchant Marine being included as to the services of the United States. Uh, are they people from the Merchant Marine that in Arlington as well? Uh, everyone heard the question, Merchant Marine at Arlington. They are, uh, my understanding is that they are not, they are not buried at Arlington. Uh, you have all the, 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 the uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard. They are all there, but not the Merchant Marine. There is some uh, movement from the Merchant Marine to have them qualify for burial at Arlington, but at the present, they're not. Yes, sir. You spoke about the um, identification and treatment of PSTD. Yes. And I wonder uh, if you, in the un unconventional nature of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, can you tell from your research whether that's a more common ailment in this kind of warfare versus the more conventional large army warfare? Uh, a good question. The short answer is I don't know, but I suspect it is. Uh, I, I suspect the nature of it uh, may have something to do with it because uh, you are in Iraq and Afghanistan, you never see the enemy. You don't know who the enemy is uh, most of the time. They blend in with the civilian population. So you have to be constantly on guard, on watch, hypervigilant. And that's one of the symptoms of PTSD. These guys, uh, you know, you may be in Afghanistan uh, worried about who's going to uh, set off a bomb or who's going to shoot you, even if it's a comrade, uh, a local, you know, comrade. And two days later, you're stuck in traffic on the beltway. Uh, you don't want that to happen if you're driving in Afghanistan or Iraq. So 
you know, you, 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 you're very, very concerned about who's around you, what are they doing, could they be a threat to you, standing in line at Walmart. You know, you don't want to stand in line somewhere. All the things we do every day in peacetime, we don't think twice about. But I think it, it, surely there, there is some element of uh, not, uh, you're expected to make a transition from a war zone to peacetime in two days. How are you going to do that? Uh, as I said earlier, most, most of these young men and women uh, are treated. Uh, they can deal with it. They overcome it. It's not like it's cured, but you le you learn to manage it if you you know if it's identified and if it's treated early enough. Uh, but we were talking uh, earlier, some of us, about if you go back through the literature of war, the oldest uh, writing of the oldest wars, Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, there were people who, in that war, suffering from what we would call PTSD. So just the shock of war, uh, if you're any kind of human at all, will have its effect on you. And then you have to make the transition back to peacetime. And, you know, we try to, we keep learning as we go, I guess, trying to learn as we go. Yes? Thanks for your interesting lecture uh, about our American history. Last Friday, I was in Arlington and at an impressive ceremony with the white horses and the smart-looking Air Force contingent they had that was handling the service. And I have two questions, but in this instance on that Friday beautiful afternoon, these individuals with their one leader was constantly uttering grunts and groans that directed the individuals in certain movements. Was my hearing so deficient that I couldn't understand it, or was it just what I thought it was? My second question is, while we were waiting for the ceremony, we circled around by the tomb of the unknowns. While I'm reading that plaque, there seems to have been a certain procedure on selecting these unknowns. Could you elaborate some on that and tell us how many unknowns there really is in that tomb? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, on the first part, the, 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 the noises, the, the signals people give uh, on the uh, casket team or the, the firing party, the honors teams for funerals, I think they try to, uh, if you're on opposite sides of a, a casket holding a flag, a lot of what you do is by sight now, that's why you see exaggerated motions. But if you're going to make a turn and you're going to march, you know, somebody has to give you the command. And I think that's what the grunts and groans are doing. Uh, some, of the, I was, some of the old guard that I spent time with, the Army guys from the honors teams, uh, the uh, sergeant uh, on the casket team who was in charge of, you know, getting them to the right place in the right order, uh, he would, uh, for cadence, for marching cadence, he had a little whistle that only the other guys could hear, oh. and I knew to listen for it, but he would, he would be, you know, uh, whistling the cadence for them to march from the curb across the grass to the tomb site. 
just like that, you know, like a little bird. Uh, so I think all the teams have their own signals. Uh, the selection of the uh, unknowns uh, has been since World War I, that's when the first unknowns came to Arlington, uh, to the Tomb of the Unknowns. Uh, it's a very elaborate process. Uh, the idea is to make sure that no one ever knew who that person in the tomb was from World War I, uh, so that they had, uh, I described this in my, my earlier Arlington book, On Hallowed Ground. Uh, I have a chapter on the unknown and how they did it, but basically what they did was to, uh, they had a, uh, an enlisted man go in to pick from four or five uh, caskets, people who, who could not be identified, who had no ID on them, who had no hope of being identified. He would walk by himself, they closed the door, they put him in a room, this was in France, put him in a room, he and gave him a, a rose, a flower, and he decided who would be the unknown, this one sergeant. Uh, he put it on one casket. That person was then brought by ship from France to Arlington and went into the tomb of the unknowns. That was the first one. The others, uh, the runners up, let's say, uh, they were taken to uh, 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 an American cemetery in France and buried with no recognition except that they were unknowns. Uh, we did some, something like that in World War II in Korea. Uh, so there's an unknown from World War I, World War II, Korea. There was an unknown from Vietnam uh, on the plaza at the Tomb of the Unknowns. His family thought that there was a paper trail and it, which made his family think, it, it's a long convoluted story, but basically his family had a sense that it might be their son who was in the grave. So they did the unthinkable in 1990, I think it was 1998. They got the army to open the tomb of the unknown of Vietnam, take out the unknown, subject him to DNA testing, which we didn't have at the time he went into the tomb. We had it by the time he came out. And it proved to be who the family thought it was, Michael Blassie from St. Louis. So they brought him out. They sent him home to St. Louis, where he's in the Jefferson National Barracks Cemetery. His name is on the tombstone. There is no Vietnam unknown. There's just a, a marker on the a plaza, which says uh, honoring those who served uh, and died in Vietnam. And it has the dates of the war. People who know about this stuff say that with any luck, we probably will not have another unknown because we've gotten so good at uh, doing IDs. And you know, if any of you uh, go into one of the, sign up for one of the uh, services tomorrow, you will have your DNA taken and it will be on file somewhere so that if the worst happens and uh, you die, there will always be a way to, to make sure we don't have any un unknowns. So progress, I guess, we'd call that. Okay, two questions. One, <laughs> sorry. 
A couple years ago, there was uh, a mix-up of the graves. They even changed command of the whole cemetery and everything, and graves, you know, things were misplaced. Has that been corrected? Have they been able to f figure out where the, some, some of the people are buried? And the second question is, when you visit family members who are buried, these were the ones in the ground, you walk along certain areas and parts of the cemetery, and it's mushy, it's just like it's swampy-like or water. Have they done anything to alleviate some of the conditions at the cemetery itself? Uh, the first part of the question, the, the, yes, there was a big scandal several years ago about uh, misplaced graves, misidentified graves, uh, terrible scandal. Uh, I think we've done the best that can be done with sorting that out, which is to go into every section of the cemetery, uh, sam do samples to make sure that the name on the gravestone matches the records, the paper records for the person in the ground. Uh, ultimately, you can't go dig up 300,000 graves, you know, to make sure that, that the names and tombstones match up. But the, the Army has done a pretty thorough job of, of uh, surveying everything, fixing the mistakes. And this is an example of good news coming from a, uh, a tragic situation. Because of that scandal, the guys from uh, Fort Myer, from the Old Guard, uh, over a number of six months, went throughout the cemetery with uh, iPhones and took a picture of every grave, front and back, and tied that, uh, that grave to a GPS locator so that we, we have a satellite uh, record of where everybody is buried at Arlington. The result of that is that now you can go online or you can, I have it on my iPhone, you can get a, a, an, an app, free app for your telephone called ANC Explorer. Put in uh, a name and punch a button and it will take you to that person's grave. So we've gone from uh, not knowing where everybody is to knowing pretty well, having a pretty good bead on it. Uh, what was your, did I answer your other question? Oh yeah, mushy ground. Yeah, well, you know, this is, uh, as, you, as you move out from the Lee Mansion, you're coming downhill toward the river. The closer you get to the river, the closer, the, the, the uh, more shallow the water table is going to be. And I'm afraid in section 60 and the newer sections of the cemetery, they're always going to have a problem with squishy ground and water. I mean, I don't know what to say. They, you know, they do what they can to, uh, to make it uh, go away, but it's going to be squishy. And I, you know, I've been at, at funerals where you're basically standing in the mud uh, hoping that someone will you know, bring some turf to put down, and they do. Uh, but that, that will be a continuing problem in that part of Arlington. 